Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am in the home of David M. Rogers, uh, one bad piano player, uh, music composition guy, I guess. I don't know. It just does it all. It's hard to wrap you up in one concise sentence, but uh, um, this is an interview I'm really, really uh, happy to be able to bring you, but kind of don't really care about you guys because he has a lot of questions he's going to be able to answer for me. So first of all, I want to say thank you for fitting me into your schedule. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure. Uh, so um, I, I think, although there are a couple interviews that I think people should know about because they're important to know you and I don't want to cover those because you can get them there. So there's one that you did with Karen Kubitas uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. on the Musician's Guide to Being Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's it's great. It's like kind of an introductory, talks about your CD, talks about some of your philosophy yeah, and stuff. 15, I think 20 that, minutes or so. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, and then I just saw one on Vanderbilt's website that they did kind of an expose on your new album as well. Yeah. Uh, which is really great. You get some of your background there. So uh, I don't know if there's other resources that you have that you've done in terms of like interviews that people could find. There was one on uh, keyboardmagazine.com. We did one um, a few weeks ago. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I would check those out because they're... Uh, I think just great resources for the whole picture. And so a lot of what I'm, hopefully what we talk about now will be kind of based off of that stuff. So make sure you check out those resources as well. So uh, I think what we should start with is you're on the road. Can you tell us like just some of the stuff you're doing right now? You don't have to go into super detail, but the groups that you're playing with and some of the projects that you're involved with so we can kind of get like a baseline. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Um, Been on the road with Kebmo. For the last three, I guess it's the third year now, uh, started off touring with him and Taj Mahal and uh, as the keyboardist and sometimes musical director. And um, so that, that's sort of the touring gig. I do a lot of uh, teaching here in town in Nashville. I just released an album, Doorways. It's my second project that's out that came out on September 1st. And I actually just finished up recording an album with Jose Sabaha and Jeremy Wilson. Um, I saw but, the promo stuff for that. It yeah. looked cool. Yeah, that's, that's going to be really cool. We did a lot of... Uh, Classical music, uh, French, sort of twentieth century, nice um, trio stuff. Yeah, cool. It's cool to me. I've I've seen you mostly do kind of like the improv, jazzier, commercial side of things. So I was uh, reminded listening to your interview with Karen that you're classically trained. Yeah, that's really like home for me in a lot of ways. I grew up playing classical piano, yeah. and my degree at Vanderbilt was actually in classical piano performance. Ah, that's so cool that you're able to. Hopefully we get into this, but you're able to kind of bridge those divides. It's just so I think I feel like it's so rare to see somebody who can so effectively cross both divides. You know, like I am a classically trained trumpet player, mm. and I can I think I can fake like big band playing totally. well enough that someone's like, ah, that's cool. <laughs> but I have not spent the requisite amount of time like learning my scales, learning my licks, you know, sure. transcribing, doing the the stuff that you need to do mm. to really be great. At, and have a lang- you know, functional use of a, of a harmonic and melodic language, right? Yeah. So I haven't really done that. But it seems like for you, you're able to do it. And you're young, like 24, I'm guessing. 25. 25. Yeah. And so... I'm getting old. 
I mean, how early did you have to start some of this stuff to be able to have such a mastery over the, I mean, you may not feel like you have mastery, but upon listening, it just seems like you have such ease and mastery over it. So what point were you starting kind of working on this and, and getting your chops re sort of worked on, you know what I mean? So that now you could be playing like this. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I started playing piano when I was four. And uh, like I mentioned, I was classically trained from the beginning. I actually started in the, in the Suzuki method. Um, and so in that regard, my ear was also being trained at a pretty high level from the get-go, which I attribute a lot of the jazz and improvised um, tendencies and sensibilities to, just because that was always from the get-go was like, yes, you have to play, but yes, you also have to listen. And it's not one or the other, but it's always both. And I think that that was an important um, sort of fundamental starting point for me as a musician. Um, when I was about 10 or 11, I started getting a little bit more into jazz. And for me, maybe it was... Uh, my personality. I mean, when we were setting up, you mentioned you're a guy who is interested in answers to questions. And I feel like I'm kind of similar in that regard, especially when it comes to music. And so when I hear something, I want to know exactly what's going on and not just like, oh, you know, he's maybe doing a couple of these things. Like I want to know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so I would transcribe and I was just kind of obsessed with figuring out at least the information aspect of it. And then you can sort of deconstruct like, why do people make the decisions they make on an improvised, in an improvised setting? Um, with the information that you've gathered. This is kind of a weird way to think about it, but do you feel like you're benefited? Your age is a benefit to you because you grew up 12 years old, you're growing up in an age where you can actually get that kind of information as opposed to maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago where you could transcribe things certainly like that, but maybe the amount of information wasn't available to you. Do you feel like that was an aid to you? In I think, yeah, you know, I've thought about that a little bit, the way that technology facilitates the accumulation of information. I mean, that's a huge thing today. But definitely, I mean, just having access to the recordings. I mean, that's, that's something as fundamental as that, like having the CDs or, you know, a few years ago when I really started using streaming services like Spotify or, or uh, Apple Music, you know, having just that ease of access. Like I can pull up almost any recording that's ever been put out there commercially and have access to it. And then, you know, yes, I spend the time transcribing it. But if I didn't have, like, I don't have to go down to a record store. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't have to plan out, like I don't have to save ten dollars to to save for this one specific lp or something do you think there's sort of a loss of appreciation of the fact that you you're not saving for this one thing so when you finally get it you're thinking all right like i'm gonna i mean you maybe are getting everything possible out of everything but i wonder if there was like a time where people were like i have to make the most out of this thing because it took so much to acquire. Yeah, I, I think that the information doesn't mean any less to me, but maybe the coming into contact with the information initially might mean less to me, if that makes sense. Sure. Like, like the record itself, it's like, of course, yeah, Romantic Warrior by Chick Corea or by Return to Forever, that's a great record. And of course, like the information to me is like, that would probably be amazing whether it were 20 years ago or whether it was yesterday. But the fact that I can get that record and listen to it whenever I want. And I can play it as many times as I want. I don't have to worry about the technology, like potentially degrading the quality of the yeah, uh, vinyl right, right. or anything. Just little things like that don't ever really occur to me. And I kind of take it for granted maybe. Well, and I, I, gosh, this just literally just dawned on me. I've, we talk about how kids and younger students have so much more access than ever before, mm -hmm. but they're not listening. Yeah. Right? They're not going to YouTube, typing it in and listening to these amazing recordings or like you said, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever it is. And I wonder if it's because it is almost so easily accessible. There's a level of, 
like disconnected. Totally. That's so interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, it's funny. My mom actually sent me yesterday, she sent me a text with an article that said the greatest uh, character asset or trait right now in the 21st century is being indistractable. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. And I'm like, that's so true. I mean, anytime I'm working on something, it's kind of a struggle to stay focused for more th- unless I'm really in it. But, you know, if I'm writing something or writing an email, it's like, oh, my phone will go off or a notification here, yeah. a notification there. It's like being indistractable is all, <laughs> it kind of feels like the the thing to aspire to sure, these days. Sure, sure. So do you, f- do you have things that you try to set up? Like, do you leave your phone in the other room if oh, you really yeah. got to get something done? Yeah, I'll t- turn the Wi-Fi off, put my phone on airplane mode, leave it in another room. Um, yeah, just things like that you kind of have to create that physical separation from technology because otherwise it's going to be <laughs> kind of running your life in a lot of ways. And yeah, for me, when I'm working on a, what I would consider to be a passion project, which is I try to daily move closer to all of my time yeah. being used that way. And I would imagine you're in a place where you're probably pretty close to that, where you probably have some things you have to do, but mm-hmm. you're trying to like figure out how do I take these passion projects and turn them into like career projects, you know, most likely, I assume. Yeah. I mean, that's Doorways was, was a lot like that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, with everything else that I was doing, doing various other recording projects for people or, or practicing, you know, for the project with Jose and Jeremy, you know, you kind of have to like partition your time in a certain way. But yeah, structuring your time so that every day you can work closer on certain things and like for me, the first three to four hours of my day by far are the most productive. Yeah. I think that's probably true for most people. I just know for me that when I do these passion projects, it's very easy to not get distracted, actually. You know, right. it's, it's I, I find like if it's a podcast episode or something, I find myself quite easily able to lose like seven hours of my life, you know, and I've never really experienced that. For me, trumpet practices was not like that. You Mm -hmm. know, I enjoyed trumpet practice to an extent, but it always felt like something I had to do to, in order to unlock whatever I wanted to say musically. And I, yeah, I feel like, yeah, working on a podcast episode or sometimes reading can be that way. Yeah. Uh, but for me, like the reading to acquire knowledge, it's really interesting to me how these other pursuits that I'm going after sort of have uh, informed how I think about practicing the trumpet. You know, how mm. do I, uh, how do I take what I'm doing with a podcast and how I can just do this forever? And how do I possibly make my trumpet practice more like that? Are there other, I promise there's a question in there. Are there other (laughs) sort of hobbies or interests you have that you feel like have influenced either your process of creating and practicing music or just has informed you enough as a person that it's affected your music making? Yeah, definitely. I think um, a big part of being a successful musician in any capacity is being disciplined. And um, for me, when when I got to college, I sort of became <laughs> obsessed with working out. And, and me and my, my buddy, we would wake up every morning at 4.30, walk to the gym, be there at five and work out from five to 6.30. And then, you know, then we'd eat breakfast and then I was in the practice from by 7.30 or eight. And I did that for like three, two or three years, um, depending on schedule and probably to the exclusion of sleeping enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But um, that kind of habitual lifestyle, that discipline is something that definitely informs practicing. Um, If we want to be as specific as that, 
or even structuring practicing. You know, practicing can be a big thing for a lot of people. And depending on what you're working on, you're probably practicing more than one thing at a time. Yeah. So being able to figure out, okay, practicing this today, you know, having a split, just like you might have a workout split, you're practicing your practice split. Um, or maybe even like practicing technique or practicing performing or practicing improvising for me, being at a somewhat classical conservatory style music school, um, I did have to do a lot of practicing on my own that wasn't really related to anything else in class just because I want, well, it was a passion project right, in yeah, a lot yeah. of ways. Inter yeah. But, but also, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is a very direct correlation between working out in the gym and, um, in practice. I think we should stick on here for a second because I'm curious for your take on this. Yeah. What do you feel like has driven improvement for you? Because you're you're just capable of pretty much anything. It seems like you, you like these. Like I said, this five eight challenge you did. <laughs> it's just kind of mind melting that you're able to make something happen. So if your technique is pretty set, but you're always assuming I have more of another level and another level to get to. What do you feel like is the cause for the, the the genesis or the catalyst for improvement for you? Yeah, I think improvement's a funny thing. For me, it's kind of like I'm never satisfied no matter where I am. And maybe that's a personality flaw with me. It could be. I kind of have an obsessive personality, but but also it's like the digger or the the deeper that I dig, the more I realize that I don't know. Or like the more I know, the more I realize. I, what I don't know. And I've heard other people say that before. And for me, that's just kind of the case, especially with um, technique or, or realizations about uh, compositional decisions. I'm always like, there's always more. And that's kind of what excites me um, to keep improving. And, you know, I'll just bring up this example because I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up a huge Lakers fan from day one. Um, and that was sort of in the prime of Kobe Bryant. Yeah, yeah. And he would always talk about the Mamba mentality. And even though I really have no uh, inclination to ever be a professional athlete by any stretch of the imagination, I always liked that uh, imagining what, what would it be like to take that Mamba mentality and take it to music, especially when it, with regards to practicing. Um, and that, that kind of excites me. Like there's always, you can always work harder. And, um, but, but like you were saying, not just harder, but also smarter yeah, and becoming that, more efficient. This is something I really wanted to ask you because it seems like uh, uh, you've, you're just succeeding right now in such a uh, sort of a public way, you know, on social media and there's like all sorts of press around your CD and I see it and I think it's amazing. And I'm kind of curious, like being on the upswing of things right now, do you have any examples of a potential downswing of maybe not actually rock bottom, but just yeah. times in your life where you feel like you've been f challenged to ask, what's my why? What am I doing? Like, this feels difficult. It's hard to dig out. And that started and or the upswing that kind of helped you propel yourself into where you are now. Yeah, I think um, there is a danger in letting good times or bad times uh, kind of affect you to too much of a degree. And I've always tried to, no matter what was happening, whether it was good or whether it was bad, um, just try to stay in the same mindset and um, not let things affect me. Of course, that's easier said than done, and ultimately environment does affect you to a pretty significant degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had many failures al along the way, and 
We're going to need some examples. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could, something as simple as I remember my sophomore year was the first time I ever did the concerto competition at, at Blair. You know, and saying these kinds of things, it kind of, I, I don't say this to trivialize other people's uh, hardships because this is, this is, seems pretty trivial to me compared to what other tough stories. And this is just one thing. This may not be the most tough thing that I've ever endured. In fact, it's not the toughest thing I've ever endured in my life <laughs> by a long stretch, but just something as simple in terms of when it comes to music is, you know, you enter, you practice for months and months and months on, on a piece and you, you go into the competition and you feel really good. You feel like you played really well and then you don't even make it to the next round and, and feeling like there's some sort of injustice and then asking, you know, why, you know, what's wrong with the judges, but then also like, what was wrong with me? Why did I not make it, you know, was I delusional? Did I think I was way better than I actually am? You know, and I'm always asking that question no matter if there's a, a manifestation of that or not. Um, but then I was like, well, what if I just made it a goal of mine to try to figure out what it would take to not only make it to the next round of the concerto competition, but actually win it? And what would that take? And and then I remember the day that I lost, I vowed to myself that I would work from that day for the next 365 days on, on, on this piece kind of relentlessly, whether I was listening to it or writing and fingering numbers, just doing little things every single day until I, I mastered this piece, which I ended up playing Rhapsody in Blue the next year. I played the Brahms, um, first movement of the Brahms B-flat piano concerto uh, my sophomore year. And then, you know, I just... I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to demystify the process of preparing for something. And so I played it for a lot of different people, got a lot of different opinions, um, recorded myself like a maniac, listened back, was just kind of as, as objective as I could be with it, with the whole process and tracked my progress until the point where I was like, I've done every single thing that I can. And I feel this time around that I did not leave any stone unturned. Whereas the previous year I felt like I had done everything right, but, but maybe I hadn't asked for other people's opinions or maybe there were some things that I had overlooked. I felt like just being a little bit more uh, thorough in the process the second time around um, allowed me to eventually win, win that competition. But, but yeah, I mean, certainly there are, there are hardships with, I think especially with improvised music, man, because that's even less objective than <laughs> playing a composition that's that's written out like chord changes and, and you feel like oh i had a bad night improvising well what does that even yeah, mean yeah right yeah you know or is it is it just like a selective memory thing where maybe you had an argument with your significant other earlier that day and so you were just in a bad mood from the get go like and and maybe it is or maybe did the the good feeling that night come from oh you know i a paycheck came through that I'd been waiting on for a month, or maybe I had a good date night last night or something. Sure. That's awesome, man. There's a couple of things I'd like to pick apart uh, on there. And the first thing would be, do you still carry some of those lessons you learned with you today as a performer, like right now, this Absolutely. many years later? Absolutely. Yeah. I think every project that I say yes to now, I mean, basically after that point, I will think through the entirety of the process that I would have to spend in order to do it to the best of my ability. 
And I think having gone through that process once, like you said, you know, I just did it to the best of my sort of conscious ability. But then the second time I really just picked everything apart and, and demystified it for myself. And I think that's the biggest lesson that I took away from it. What is like next? What does a, a next mean for you? You know, because with sort of the abilities that you carry and the technology that's, available, I was listening to your interview and you were saying, oh, when we were in the studio for doorways, not only were we just trying to play the best we could, but then we were saying, what effects could we add to this? Oh, yeah. or how could we have uh, with Pro Tools? So you're you're like even on the next step of how can we alter what is possible to create what's not possible? Yeah. So, I mean, what's like next for someone who thinks like that? Next for me is always, so I'll back up. When I was at Vanderbilt, I studied with this incredible professor who taught several classes, classroom style classes, lecture style classes. His name is Carl Smith. And he divided information into four categories. So it's one, quadrant one is the things we know we know. The thing, quadrant two is the things we no, we don't know, right? And then the quadrant three is the things we don't know that we know. And then last, of course, the quadrant four is the things we don't know that we don't know. Mm. And for me, that's quadrant four is, is always what's next for me is, is expanding what I don't know that I don't know or trying to, trying to tap into that a little bit more. That's, that looks like, you know, personal awareness. That, that also looks like talking to people and learning about people and music and culture so in this moment, like today, tomorrow, this week, last week, how is that manifesting itself? Like what kinds of things do you feel like you're learning that's helping you know, learn what you don't know? Yeah. Well, I, I am doing a, finishing up a master's degree right now, actually at a school here in town, uh, Belmont University. And my thesis project is actually on the ways that flamenco music, of all things, has affected jazz composition. And for me, I didn't know anything about flamenco music. And I only know maybe an average amount about whatever that means about jazz composition. <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to try to quantify. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but for me, it was like, what if I just dove in headfirst to yeah. this culture, music culture uh, in Southern Spain that I know nothing about and then learn about the ways learn about that culture and then try to figure out the ways that that has affected jazz and maybe even has affected me and then write five pieces, compositions based on those realizations and then that information that I ultimately learn about. And so that's, that's one way that I've, you know, very specific way that I try to um, expand what I don't know that I don't know because in that process, ultimately I'm learning about a culture that I didn't know anything yeah. about. Well, I, I think, to me, that's a really optimal way to do it. You're not trying to take on the world. You're just picking a thing that looks like you could be interested in it. Yeah. But exhausting that. Yeah. Totally. In a way, you know, you're not just like, oh, I'll learn a little bit about it. Just like you said, you're going to like walk away from that feeling like I did what I needed to do to learn right. about it, that. And it's related to what we were talking about earlier, which is in this day and age with the prevalence of information, like there's never been more information <laughs> than there is today in terms of what's readily accessible to us via the internet. And so I think it's rarer and rarer for people to actually want to dig deep because it's so easy to just sort of scrape the surface and get everything you might need or feel like you need in that moment. In, in those few seconds where you're wondering something, you're like, oh, I could just Google it, look on Wikipedia, whatever. And right. then you have that information. Yeah. But for me, it's like, I get so much joy out of really digging deep and seeing things all the way through. Sure. 
That's cool, man. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, your time playing with uh, first Taj Mahal and Keb Mo, and now just playing with Keb Mo. And um, now you've been doing it for three years, you said, so you're kind of used to what it is to play with a group like this and, and legends. And especially like you were saying in your interview with Karen, uh, guys that are much older and much more experienced uh, in this genre and this sort of lifestyle than you are. And I'm curious, how did you bridge the gap between uh, I'm at Vanderbilt doing my thing, enjoying my life, and then now where you're uh, even more seasoned? How do you bridge the gap in terms of confidence? How do you put yourself forward as I need to be able to play in a certain way that um, shows that I can do it, shows that I can hang with these guys before you really understand what that even means? Does that make sense? Yeah, what I'm definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that was probably the hardest thing at first as the biggest challenge. Um, I think ultimately it came down to a couple things. First, realizing that they're asking me was the only indication for confidence that I really needed. Like, had they not asked me, I wouldn't even be in this position. So in some sense, it's like, because they reached out, I know at least on some level that I'm worthy of playing with them. And I think that was the the biggest thing for me to realize. And it it took time and it's still kind of settling in because like like you mentioned, um, the age thing is just such a, and the experience thing. I mean, all the things that are time dependent, sure, age, yeah, yeah. wisdom, experience. Um, I think another thing is just being open to control the things that I can control and then just not worry about those other things. Like I can't make myself be older overnight. Right. right. You know, if I could, I would have by now, <laughs> um, but everything else. So like being a, being a good listener, um, doing my homework, you know, studying the music outside, listening to everything, taking copious notes on my, on the notes app of my phone or taking voice memos and constantly doing the work that maybe someone who's twice my age wouldn't have to do because they've just lived it. But for me, I feel like I have to play catch up a little bit. Um, and the things that I can control, um, which is not accelerate time, but everything else, which is trying to um, artificially create some of that uh, extra experience and extra listening um, in my free time. I remember when we were in Europe and we had all these long bus rides and long uh, airplane commutes, I would just be listening um, every single waking moment, you know, I'd fall asleep with my headphones on and wake up with my headphones on. It's still spinning, um, like Donny Hathaway or, um, Muddy Waters or BB King or, or whoever and, and studying or Greg, Greg filling gains on whatever recordings, I was just studying all these great musicians and trying to imagine one consciously what they could offer me in terms of what could I direct, directly apply to this gig, but then also just listening to a lot of great music that also these legends really appreciate. And then just having faith that over time, it'll sort of marinate yeah. and through osmosis, just affect my playing. Yeah. I have a couple thoughts about that. One, it seems to go back to our conversation earlier where you were saying what you learned from that Vanderbilt concerto competition mm. was that you just got to do everything and feel like you could walk away feeling like I did everything I possibly could have. And it also makes me think of a conversation I had with Ryan Mitta oh, yeah. on our podcast interview where he was saying one thing he thinks is interesting to get to know a particular artist is to you know listen to their influences, to try Absolutely. to follow a lineage backwards. Yeah. So also you're kind of catching up with 
getting to know the people you're working with by probably studying the stuff that they grew up on or the stuff that they were even playing with probably, you yeah. know, depending <laughs> on, depending on who we're talking about and sort of getting an idea of, it's like you're playing extra gigs with the people you're on the road with without av having to do that. So you're kind of supercharging your, your uh, learning process. Yeah. A lot of times, well, there's two thoughts. One is re directly related to that is that a lot of times I would be, um, kind of frustrated sometimes with the communication or lack of communication, but it's, it's just different than a academic style of communicating with musicians. You know, sometimes they'd say stuff and I wouldn't quite understand. And, you know, like if they're, and there, it's not really a, a specific critique or anything. They're just like, it needs to have more hump on it. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. I looked that up in the music <laughs> dictionary and hump is not in there. <laughs> but, but then, but then I, I you kind of have to like, demystify it again kind of what we were talking about earlier and um and then yeah well this is in this style what what new orleans piano players should i be listening to um for example and then also the other thought that i had was you asked me earlier about challenges and i i don't know why this didn't pop in my maybe i've just sort of like hidden it pushed it away <laughs> suppressed it <laughs> yeah but man really the first i don't know how many months like two, at least two months, maybe three on the road in 2017, my first year with Taj and Kev were incredibly uncomfortable for me. Like I felt like I was going out there every night and faking it first of all, but then on top of that, doing a horrible job at faking oh, it. Oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I felt like I had nothing to say musically. Um, and I felt like in a lot of ways I didn't belong. And that's a really tough feeling when I was like, why didn't they just call somebody else? I, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't grateful. I was extremely grateful, but I was like, I don't feel like they picked the right person. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For, for a long time, like I didn't, I had nothing to say on the Hammond organ, first of all. In fact, here's a funny story. When we went to Europe, this was like a month and a half into the tour. This was July of 2017. We, we flew into London and that was the first time. And then we had everything backlined all the keys. We didn't fly with a Hammond organ. <laughs> so yeah, we, right. we had an a, a organ backline. That was the first time that we had an actual Hammond organ backline. Everything else was just a keyboard version or an XK something or other, XK5. Um, and I sat down on the organ and I was like, wow, there are four uh, sets of draw bars. And, and the keyboard had two sets of draw bars, one for the top man and one for the lower man. And I was like, why does this one have four? Like, that's how little I knew about. So I went on Google, super slow T-Mobile service in London because it's international. And I, I just started Googling and I, I was like, why does an organ have four draw bar, four sets of draw bars? And of course there's two that c control the top and two that control the bottom manual. Um, which I now know, <laughs> but in 2017, I was literally wow. Googling on the job. Wow. How does my instrument work? That's so interesting to me. I've talked about this with uh, a couple of uh, people now. One of the interviews I did with a guy, a trumpet player in the Boston Symphony, he talked about this. Kathleen, my wife and I talk about this all the time, that I think people have this idea that once you win an orchestral audition or once you get the call to play with, you know, any group, any touring group that's established, it's like, all right, cool. That person knows what's going on. Yeah. And there's this weird secret that like, we're no different than, than we were the day before when we didn't have it. Mm -hmm. We're just now 
So obviously there's something they saw in your playing that they wanted, yeah. you know, but it didn't require you to have the amount of knowledge that you were going to need to get to get the job. And yeah. thankfully, you know, we live in an information age, right? <laughs> right. So you could do that. Yeah. Um, I just think that's really interesting. And it's another story of like, I didn't know everything I needed to know. And so then the question is, is even with, so when you felt like you were an imposter, basically, exactly. right? I mean, how do you push through, you know, how do you keep coming back night after night, trying new things, trying to figure it out little bit by little, you know, how do you do that? Well, um, it's having faith again, that they made the decision that sure. they meant to make. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that does make it a lot easier, you know, the things that we talked about earlier, listening like a madman. Right. <laughs> doing, yeah, I'm doing, sure that working, like, working 24 seven. But that almost came at, so you were saying it when I first heard you say you were, sorry to interrupt, but you, yeah. were, you were talking about listening and I was just thinking about it. You're like, oh man, I feel like I'm young. I want to catch up. But to a certain extent now, it sounds like it's possibly was born out of necessity too. I think it was necessity. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that makes it easier for me, you know, I've, I'm still young, you know, I'm 25, but I've been in enough situations by now that intellectually, I understand that anytime something is hard, I'm growing and I'm getting better mm. for the most part. Um, for musical situations, I know that feeling really well. Like anytime I'm struggling and I'm feeling a certain way, I can map that feeling to an intellectual thought and truth. I think that is, um, this is a season of growth or this is a moment of growth and that's why it hurts. That's why it's uncomfortable. You know, it's just like what we were talking about earlier, like with working out. Um, same thing. Like if you're in the gym and you, you go all the way to failure, you know that, okay, well, I can't do an 11th rep right now, or I can't do five reps. I can only hit four today, but you know that that's causing growth Yeah, yeah. and that's, you're building strength and you're getting better as a result. So intellectually, I can map certain uncomfortable feelings and intellectually that makes me kind of reconcile like, okay, this is really hard, but at least I have getting better to look forward to. Yeah. And I think that, I think that logical look is actually very important. Yeah. You know, I think we often think with our emotions, you know, yeah. and so a feeling like I don't belong can lead us to making irrational yeah. decisions, one that you might regret later. So yeah. you being able to say, okay, like, I'm growing. Yeah. I'm growing. I'll be better tomorrow than I was today. Yeah. If I keep doing that, you being able to intellectually hold on to that obviously is like why you are sitting where you are now and with well, still doing the gig, but probably yeah. feeling a lot more comfortable now than you did then, you know? Yeah. And Keb did tell me, he's like, <laughs> he, he didn't say these words verbatim, but essentially he, he told me that the reason that he's kept me around <laughs> that I wasn't fired or let go is he's, he told me that I'm teachable. And that was an important realization for me is that he, he likes working with me because I'm teachable. And I think that's, um, a big thing for me, you know, willingness to be taught. And I didn't, it didn't really occur to me that something that I was aspiring towards necessarily. It's not like I'm going in this and I'm going to try to be teachable. It's like, I think that's a good thing to aspire towards if, if you want to, but I just really enjoy learning. And I think that that came through uh, in a genuine way. Um, 
Just sounds like you've been that way for a long time, though, you well, know? Well, Even from when you were young and messing around I, with these, like, sounds on the finale and stuff, yeah. you're just, like, learning, like, what what sound does this make? What sound? Now it's sort of like a full-fledged realization. Yeah, of, I, I joke with people. Anyone who was raised by my mom could not end up not teachable. <laughs> <laughs> and she will enjoy hearing that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I think that's so, so important, though, you know, these things that were instilled in us. Well, so... This isn't still when you were young, you know, yeah. I certainly think people can learn these things later in life. It's part of the reason for this podcast. Yeah. I hope somebody hears 100%. that you are, you thought I'm teachable, but then also seeing how it manifests itself in a professional career, being able to hear a story like I was kept around, whatever, not only for your great playing, of course, like that's a prerequisite we all understand is necessary. Mm. But then, like, what else makes somebody want to work with this person? I guess that's the best way to say it. And for you being teachable something that is like so far removed from actually playing the instrument. It's like yeah. a completely separate personality trait. Yeah. It's one that anybody can hold. Anybody can yeah. do that. They don't have to be your skill level to be able to do that. Like they can just become teachable. They can decide I'm going to be teachable right now yeah. and then see where that takes them. Well, I think that that's a good point because the first day that I ever showed up to tour rehearsals back in 2017, I was still a student. Like I hadn't even graduated yet. We were rehearsing. Um, and Keb tells me that I am already way overqualified in terms of facility yeah. for this gig. He said, you know, there's nothing that on this gig that you can't play. And hearing that from the get go was kind of, I was like, okay, well, you know, it didn't really surprise me on one hand because I'm always working as if I want to be able to play anything. You know, that, that's sort of my big goal in terms of how I practice is like, not because I might need to, but in case I need to, um, I want, I don't want my technique to ever hold me back. But, but to hear him say that was like, okay, all of a sudden I understand that there are other things right. like there, are, it's probably everything else that I'm not, <laughs> yeah. that I'm not thinking about. And so I, I had to start thinking that way. Yeah. And then, you know, it's just general humility. It's like, no matter where I am, there will always be more to learn. I think at it coming in as the youngest one by far certainly helps um, to to be humble. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of immediately put yourself in that position. Yeah, exactly. And being in a new musical environment, of course, is a constant reminder that, yes, yeah, you have a lot, a long way to go and a lot to learn. Um, but then also just, just being teachable. I think it, it comes back to, yeah. to that. Yeah, putting yourself in new musical experiences, that's such an interesting part of mm. jazz to me, mm. is that it's sort of always going to be a new experience, especially when you're talking about improvisation and the amount of communication you probably have on stage. There's probably not one performance that feels like another performance in some aspects. Yeah, yeah. Of course, like the verses and the choruses might be the same in terms of the melodies you guys are playing, but yeah. when you have the opportunity to break free from that just a little bit, you know, uh, especially when you're in a group that that's like you said, that's listening and the communicating like what you've talked about, I'm sure it can be a little bit different. So you're constantly like your those skills are being flexed constantly. Probably. Of, yeah. I'm trying this out. Or I'm going to see how this person responds. Oh, let's go down this thread for a second. Yeah. As opposed to my job, 
which is we kind of pride ourselves on doing it the same, exactly the same Ah. every time, right? Yeah. The same crescendo. We want the conductor to look the same so we know what to expect. We got to have it in four every single time instead of, oh, what if he flips into two? Now we're going to be a train wreck, right? Yeah. And it's it's not because people can't handle it. It's because we don't flex that muscle in the same way with such Mm. regularity, you know? It's interesting. Yeah, the idea of consistency in an improvised setting actually... Like you said, the micro level is always different. But on the macro level, I feel like we aspire to sort of bring the same thing every night, which is which is probably just being open to listening, listening at a very high level. Like that is the uh, the ideal, I guess, to aspire towards every night. And so in that in some sense, we're we're trying to do the same thing. Inevitably, it's always different. And then the other thing about improvising is that it becomes less about the tunes like in, in in very deep improvisation at least obviously there are jazz standards and it is about the tune and the form and the lyrics when you're playing with the singer and actually when you're not playing with the singer it should be about the lyrics too but um the musicians become the music hmm. and and that's something that i actually feel is true or should be true in most music um, I guess in an orchestral setting, you could educate me on this. It's probably a little bit different because you do have specific roles to be playing. Yeah. yeah but at yeah. the same time, you, the musicians still are the music to to an extent. Like you can't. You well, know, then how does it stay jump up, overboard? How does it stay about the music and not become about the musicians? Yeah. If the musicians are the music. Yeah, it's a great great point. I think it's. Um, like I'm thinking about a specific group that I play with here in town, a quartet with Marcus Finney on drums and Greg Bryan on bass and Jovan Coelho on saxophone. And and that's called the Greg Bryan expansions, Greg group. But then we all play in different configurations and just call it our own group. So <laughs> essentially it's sort of this rotating quartet to depending on who the leader is. And there's something about when the four of us play, we play differently and... And so it, it ultimately it points back to the music, but on some level, between the smallest level and the largest level, it is also about the musicians and how we're communicating with each other. But then it's like the four of us create something, like create the group experience. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint. I know it's very vague. No, I think but it, it's, it actually makes sense to me uh, because... You're, I know as musicians, we're bringing this thing to life or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think a big difference between classical music and jazz music, though, is that somebody else wrote this thing mm-hmm. and we're bringing somebody else's vision to life. Sure. As opposed to, um, I mean, obviously somebody would have written the chart that you're playing or yeah. whatever, the melody at least, right? But after that, when it's you guys, it's like you're creating something that has never existed before. Mm. And I'm sure you want some consistency with in terms of like how it is presented. Yeah. Um, but like you said, every group, every configuration of musicians is going to have a different a different approach, a different vibe to how that's going. But you're literally creating something that didn't exist before you guys came to it. Exactly. And for us there's like sort of a standard way uh-huh. of doing it, which obviously in every every genre, every idiom, there's going to be a standard way of doing it. But for us, from group to group to group, that's you're you're we're all striving to approach it about the same, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the trumpet should be about this loud relative to the violins, that right. kind of thing. And I think it, I, I think there's good and bad about 
both, hmm. you know? So for me, sorry to ramble, but well, it's good. for me, the good about that consistency is somebody knows what they're going to get. Right. Right. When yeah, they go yeah. to the concert, when you're going to hear Mahler's second symphony, you know what you're going to get about what you're going to get. Yeah. When you go to a combo, you know, a quartet or a combo, uh, a jazz at a jazz club or something like that, like you don't always know what you're going to get in turn, even if it's autumn leaves, right? Yeah. yeah if yeah. I see autumn leaves on there, I'm like, cool. But then there's like, I've heard, you know, like 20 different versions of autumn leaves on CDs and stuff. And yeah. they're all a little bit different. And so maybe I really identify with one, but another one I'm like, I don't know. So you don't know like what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody who digs that. Right. right. It's just it's part the of the aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think it just depends on who you are. Yeah. And what you prefer. Right. And then I think learning to appreciate both sides is important. Yeah. 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 And, and that's something that I'm really passionate about is obviously there are lines and genre lines and, and over time things have camps emerge, like talking about like classical world versus the jazz or the improvised world. But for me, you know, I came out of a, an idea. I don't know. I just grew up doing both. And for me, it just seems logical. I see the ways in which they influence each other. And, and I don't quite understand, um, on a macro level, why they need to be separated as much as it seems they are, especially in academia. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and that, that's something I'm so passionate about. And, and I hope I can make some sort of contribution to the, <laughs> the educational world someday. So what do you capacity. see? What do you see as the like to make the contribution? You would have had to have seen some sort of deficit, if you want to put it that way. So like, what do you see the like be it being so split? Mm -hmm. What do you see as people not getting that they could be? Sure, getting? I'll just give a couple specific examples. So for people who are primarily jazz players or improvisers, um, sometimes there's a considerable deficit in an ability to read read music. I mean, it's something as simple as that. It's not always, but, and then sometimes it's a deficit in, in technique. And again, you don't have to be the greatest player or you don't have to be able to play C major scale 16th notes at 150 BPM. But, but if you want to, you should be able to. And right. I see a lot of times cats who want to be able to play faster, but who don't. And I, one of the things I hear so often from a lot of more jazz or non-classical players or non-classically trained players is, man, I wish I just had more technique. I wish I had better technique. And, and I think that's, that comes out of uh, a culture where maybe for whatever reason, classical music feels like this big mountain and I can't approach it. Or maybe it was just, it just was never culturally relevant when, when this specific musician was growing up. On the, on the other hand, I feel like classical musicians can benefit from being able to improvise and being able to comfortably improvise. I think this is true, especially for pianists. There's so much um, great piano literature um, that was written by improvisers. You know, Bach was an improviser. I mean, we've heard this ah, so yeah. many times. Yeah, Bach was point. an improviser. Mozart was an improviser. Uh, Chopin was an improviser. Liszt was an like all, there. There's such this long lineage of great composers who are also, by any stretch of the imagination, great improvisers. And that comes through in their music. So to fully interpret their music effectively, it's not about nailing every single, well, yes, you have to play every single note, but it's less about, okay, I played all seven of this septuplet run, but Chopin wasn't thinking about septuplets necessarily when they're all notated as grace notes. You know, he was thinking it was just a flourish, an right, improvised flourish. Right. And to really embody the spirit of this, of certain types of music, I think 
it would really benefit classical players to be able to understand, oh yeah, this is just an A-flat major sixth arpeggio that I'm playing that's ascending. That's all it is. And, and to understand it as a singular entity, as opposed to uh, there's seven notes, and how am I going to fit this seven against this three in the left right. hand? You know, yeah. it's, it's not a math problem. Yeah. It, it was just an improvised energy. So why do you think that this, if at one point in time, let's say using those examples mm -hmm. all the way back to Bach, sure. if there is improvisation in what they did, why do you think this split developed? That's a whole conversation, and I'm not educated enough yeah. to fully answer to that. I have, I, I'm sure there are conspiracy theories, and, and yeah. I'm not educated enough to actually get into anything, and, and I don't want to say something that might be untrue if there's some actual information out there. Um, I think on the biggest level, on the macro level, I think people got really comfortable with just playing things that were written. And it's just people being comfortable being comfortable, I think comes yeah. back to that. Because improvisation is kind of uncomfortable to a certain degree. And I think people are like, why do I need to do that if, if everything's written here? This is just so easy. And people just sort of became complacent a sure. little bit in their musical skills. Man, I think it could be, because back in box time or Liszt or Chopin, you know, how many box were there? How many Chopins were there? Yeah, I don't know either. Probably a few, right? Yeah, more than one for sure. Yeah, but were there a hundred? I don't know. But like how many Chopins do we have now? Probably, I mean, maybe not Chopin, right? Yeah. Composing or whatever, people that can play Chopin and really do it justice. Yeah. That's like a, it's a lot more now, right? Because of the training people have had and the knowledge of what is possible has expanded. So, right? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think people playing Chopin's music, there are more people who can play it. I think there are a disproportionate fewer number of people who could write music that's great in the same way Chopin's music sure, was yeah, great yeah. and also improvise. Yeah. Well, so what I'm saying is I think if I were to guess, yeah. this is my guess. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. Um, it's that I think the level has just gotten so high yeah. that I kind of feel specialization is necessary to a certain extent mm. to be a truly great classical performer and to be able to compete with what exists now. Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult Unless you want to sort of, there's going to be a sacrifice somewhere. Yeah. But I think it's very difficult. It's why I have not really approached the impro improvisation mountain that you mm -hmm. just described about classical. Yeah. Because it feels like this insurmountable. Huh. At first it did. You know, I used to do it when I was in high school a little bit, yeah. but I just felt like I wasn't that great. And I didn't have, I had people that were supportive, but I didn't have somebody to be like, you can do this. Let's just work on it a little bit. Right. Yeah. So I didn't have any formal training in improv. Uh, at least not any that would have had significant enough effect that I would have kept going. But now it feels like an insurmountable mountain. And I feel like I still have, I feel like I play the trumpet great. Mm -hmm. And I still have such a possible level above what I can do now that, yeah, yeah you know what I mean? I feel yeah. like if the level has gotten so high, I think it's so difficult to be great at both. And so for, I think most people, you just like choose which one you most identify with. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think... I think, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I'm, I'm going to say that the reason it's hard, feels insurmountable to do both is because we're conditioned to think that there's two different camps yeah, as opposed I'd, to there being one. I'd buy that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, so I think if, it's just music. Yeah. So if the curriculum just included both from the get go, exactly. you wouldn't even think about it. Exactly. Difficult. So when you were a beginner in fifth grade, 
right. not able to play a C major scale if you just added like a couple of like, you know, modes in there. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're learning jazz without even like realizing your know, jazz like language without even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, yeah, that seems legit. Almost like, and this is not the perfect comparison, but almost like being a specialist in list. Like why, why bother playing any other composer? Like if I, if I only played list from the get go and then all of a sudden 20 years in, someone was like, okay, now you gotta, you gotta record to perform Bach. I'm like, feels insurmountable. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's not the perfect comparison, but, but you it kind of feels similar. But do you, so if you were someone who played list, you, an only list, yeah. you know, you would have, you would have like digested recordings. You would have you know, spent so much time honing list, yeah. researching, getting in the mind space, you'd probably be legitimately the definitive list interpreter, right? Yeah. And this happened with, a, you know, Carlos Kleiber. Are you familiar oh, yeah. with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kleiber only conducted, you know, a Beethoven, Brahms, some Wagner that I've mm -hmm. seen, some a little bit of Strauss that I've seen. Like, it wasn't the full gamut of the repertoire. And I think it was so he could be in a the authority almost on these few things. So he he's like the extreme version of specialization, yeah. right? And I, I think I think that's it's cool to specialize. I don't think music was necessarily meant to ever be a specialty though. Yeah. And, and that that's a whole nother can of worms and I'm not gonna tell anybody what to do necessarily. But for me, I just seeing in the ways that like, you know, going back to <laughs> to what you don't know that you don't know, um I think specialization feels safe after a certain period because you get to a certain point and you're like, okay, yeah. this is, I know this. And yeah. you, it's sort of like, maybe it is a pride thing. Maybe it is an ego thing. It's like, I'm comfortable and I'm but good. I think, I'm good at this. Yeah. And people so, are paying me to do this. Right. This is the, this is the David Goggins thing, man. People just, people want to be comfortable. Yeah. And totally. so we can justify a lengthy period of time of hard work and grinding hard work, but we got to get to this like plateau <laughs> yeah. where we're cool. Yeah. And so then we're in this space of, you know, if you're not in this sort of painful growth period, then you've stopped almost, yeah. right? And you can always, you can always research more. You can study the score more. You could always learn something more. But I feel like, yeah, putting yourself in those positions where you feel like you're lost, mm -hmm. that's going to be the fastest growth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then it sort of begs the question too. It's like, what's the point of being a musician, you know, what's the role that music is supposed to play in my life? And for me right now, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids, I don't have a family. And so I'm able to be pretty incredibly selfish with, with sure. music and I can foresee a day someday where, okay, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've reached this point and I'm comfortable being at this and I will willingly choose to sort of plateau willingly. And, and because music is not number one in my yeah, life. I imagine you'll... I imagine it'll just change how you push yourself. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't I doubt it'll be in the eight hour practice sessions or Yeah, I don't even do that. Yeah, you know no, what I mean? Yeah, no, like yeah. I, I doubt it'll be that will be how you view your you push yourself. I, I bet it'll just be on a cre like even more on the creativity scope because that you mm. can be thinking about all the time, regardless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I, I, I kinda wanna talk about your album. Sure. Doorways. Um and I have a couple of specific questions about it, but one that just popped in my head when we were talking uh earlier is um what what do you feel like the um the differences the pros and the cons of live versus recorded jazz 
mm. uh, albums or music or whatever because you're improving when you record it, right? Yeah. And so, like, it's like you're seeing an improv. You're not going to hear the same recording, the same Autumn Leaves recording, as opposed to Mahler Two. Yeah. Any Mahler Two, you might have like a trumpet player or a cello player that sounds epic, right? Uh, but generally, it's going to be Mahler Two. Right. But for something like jazz, uh, you could buy twenty different records and have 20 different recordings right mm -hmm. and so that feels like you could amount to hearing and especially if you're genuinely improving and you're like putting your heart and soul into it yeah you're doing it it's like you're recording a live performance yeah recorded yeah recording improvisation is really tough there was a time in my life where i was completely anti-recording i was like the energy of live performing live performance of music, which is the natural state of music is to be played live and heard live is, is corrupted to a point where it's not worth recording anything. And of course I, I don't believe that anymore, but, right. <laughs> but I was sort of coming from that, that place where I thought, I mean, a recording is like anti-music almost, especially with improvisation because it's taking something that belongs in a certain moment and copying, pasting it to another moment and it's not about the moment. It's it's like about something else. And I, I think that's a little ridiculous and kind of dramatic, but <laughs> <laughs> but um but there there's there's just a a tiny little bit of that that I still feel anytime I'm recording jazz. And you know, my my friend Marcus Finney is a great drummer, and I mentioned him earlier. He actually kind of figured this out, and he wasn't the first, but a lot of people have done this, but he's releasing a record in November, November 23rd, I think, where he recorded it with a live studio audience. And I think that's the closest huh. way to get to something that you can feel like is truthful and honest. And because it's, when you're in the studio and you know you have an infinite number of takes waiting for you if you don't get this one right, or if you're not happy with this one, it, it, it changes how the risks you take. Like pretty much yeah. it's, improvisation for me at this stage is taking risks with the amount of risks that I'm willing to take. So it's being as sort of dangerous and risky in the moment as I, as I feel. And, and that's a decision, making decisions out of that decision. But when you have a live studio audience, pretty much you just have accountability. Like hmm. you have 30 or however many people are in the room with you, um, listening to you in the moment. And, and it is a performance pretty much, but you could do it again, but you probably won't. Because maybe it's pride. Like, I don't want to see people or I don't want people to see me fail or I don't want people to hear me play a bad or run even or just something. like one of, one of the things I, I think would be the most interesting is just, you know, pulling back the curtain on what goes into recording something. You know, I yeah. feel like it takes a little bit of the magic of a recording away to know that if somebody <laughs> took 600 takes to do that thing. Yeah. It might take away a little bit of it. So when there's an audience there and they see you like, I got to do that again. I got to do that again. I got to do that again. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like it would make it uh, like not accountability only on like, I got to do it that way. But I kind of want to make sure that these people still believe I can roll this out <laughs> on one take, you know? Yeah. You, you don't want to let them see too far behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's interesting. I, I mean, for Doorways, the objective was not to make a great jazz album. For me, it was to make a great studio album that just happens to have jazz elements or improvised elements on it. And the difference for me, it was kind of less about 
my solos, if that makes sense, and more about the overall process of fine-tuning things, editing things. Um, and that came out of being in the studio with Kev for just hundreds of hours over the last three years, working on his projects, working on other people's projects with him as the producer, and seeing how he works and how like everything gets passed through this fine-tooth comb. Like not, Again, no stone gets left unturned when it comes to recording. Like We go through every single track. We hear how everything's lining up or not lining up, we, you know, we can edit it, we can move things and there's nothing that's safe. Like nothing is untouchable in, mm. in that regard when, when in the studio. And I was like, what would it sound like for me to make a record where I don't compromise the compositions or the music? I still set out to record the same pieces I was planning to record, but I put it through this process. And I think Doorways is a result of that. Mm. So I read in the Vanderbilt uh, article that there are challenges that you, you know, what I, what I, what most struck out to me is actually when you said something along the lines of, I would just come up against this wall and I wouldn't know how to move forward. Yeah. Right. And I think this, especially as a creative entity, a creative spirit, this idea of writer's block, right. Mm -hmm. That exists. But also I imagine uh, when you're collaborating with somebody trying to get the right thing, you know, mm -hmm. the right sound, the right, um, what are your, what do you, do you have tips or tricks of how you get past that? Or is it just, you just keep trying until you get it? Yeah, I think there's such a fine line and it's completely context dependent of when do I say enough is enough and stop banging my head against this wall, but knowing that that's an honest decision and that's not just someone being lazy, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you could always spend more time doing something. When is it productive and when is it no longer productive? And I think that's the biggest challenge. I think the challenge in that situation is just discernment and wisdom and trying to figure out, okay, is this going to work? Like there were a couple tunes on the, on the record that actually didn't make the record because they just weren't at the same level and it didn't inspire me when I listened back. But then also I was like, I, I, I mentioned this to the person in the interview. I don't think it got put in the interview. Um, but there was a tune called Figuring It Out that I really wanted to have on the record because it was unique, unlike anything else. And I really like the composition, but it just wasn't working. And ironically, the tune entitled Figuring Out, I never figured out. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it, I, I was self-cursed from the start because I thought I should name it that. Right, yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, but, but something like that, I think I was trying to do everything and I was, you know, I was recording with different people and editing it. And I was just like, it's still not working. I'm just going to leave this one off. And, mm. and I, I kind of felt like a failure at first. Like I didn't figure this one out. So I failed. Um, but, but I think it was just more of that is a realization that I need to spend more time on it in a context where I don't feel pressured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can do that after I release the album, you know, I have all these tracks sitting around and I'll just, I'll go back sometimes at like 1am and just listen through stuff. Oh yeah. Sometimes, you know, I was talking about this. One of their first questions was like structuring time and you know, I'm very creative at night a lot of times and focused in the morning and coming at things from, from different parts of the day can sometimes help me break yeah. through. Yeah. I read this article on, uh, on the Bulletproof Musician mm. website. And he was saying this, I forget what he called it. <clears throat> it could be interleaved practice, I think. Okay. But it's just the idea that you you practice at night and then you rest and then you practice right away in the morning. Yeah. And this sort of connective 
thing between that. But it's kind of interesting that you would have the creativity part at night and the focus part. It's like you're sort of priming your work for the next morning by yeah. creating or doing some of the creative process at night. Yeah, it's like the subjective work I'll do at night and then in the morning with a clear mind, I can objectively yeah. evaluate how good or bad the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, oh, the idea is. Cool. But, but then I just realized there are maybe like 70% of the time, just picking a random number, but more than more than half the time, I feel like the ideas at night are better than the, are just more interesting to me. Yeah. Why not? So obviously being young, you're in a generation where something like YouTube is a viable platform or... Um, I don't know. I, I guess YouTube is the best example of what I'm talking about. But um, why release a record? You know, why not go the YouTube route and make some sort of, you know, edited content that is those is that content, mm -hmm. but has more uh, more multi, you know, a different platform, different right. media. I mean, I don't know if that crossed your mind, but I'm just curious why. Because records just feel like uh, you can still do things and they still have value but it's we don't records don't mean the same thing that they used to right yeah well i made doorways for myself pretty much like the process was to see if i personally could do this thing which i'd seen other people and heard other people do and i was like i'm just curious what it would sound like um for so maybe it's ego maybe the answer to your question is just ego <laughs> but uh. but for me i was just i was curious genuinely curious like what would it take um i think actually more than ego it was just like an intellectual fascination with the process like this is a process that is not familiar to me like to put music that I write through this like filter that I described earlier where I would literally go through every single track and think like like how would Keb Mo produce my music and that was just fascinating to me because I like how his music sounds there's air air to it like there's space in it and space is not something that comes naturally to me uh, mm -hmm. when I'm playing or writing or composing and 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 space not just in terms of not playing but also creating space like eqing things you know um filtering things a certain way all the way down to the production level so i was just curious like how would i go about doing that and i felt you know obviously we we released the record september 1st but in a lot of ways i felt like i had i did it like in july when we mastered the album and had i never released it had i just mastered it and heard it for myself and feeling like, oh, I did the thing. Um, that would have been completely enough for me. Yeah. That's how I feel about this podcast in a lot of ways, mm. you know, sitting here talking to you is it's very fascinating and I feel like I'm learning a lot. Yeah. And if I never released this to anybody, <laughs> right. I still would have that information, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting to me when I get comments from people that are like, oh, there's so much gold and Barbara Butler, my, my teacher, her, her episode is an example. A lot of people have, com have given me comments on like, oh, there's so much gold. And I've listened to it multiple times. And I just think about that. And, and when I, t when I talk, talk to people sometimes, I'm like, just imagine for a second you've listened to every podcast episode I've ever done. And that's me. You know, yeah. I've listened to every single episode I've ever done. Live. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I go back also. And I live with it so I can make a blog post that has some value, right? Oh, so yeah. I, I try to pull out some points to think about so that has value. So then I go back and listen to it again. But later, yeah, when I'm maybe different, I've learned some more. I've like done some thought. You know, like you were saying, coming back to this thing after you've had some creative juices flowing or whatever. And I just think there's so much value in doing something for you to learn. Absolutely. I yeah. think it's getting rarer and rarer. I mean, social media has kind of corrupted that because... 
you get all these little mini um, dopamine hits anytime you post something and people like it or comment. And it and it, who knows? I don't know if there's enough research out yet, but it, it kind of rewires the brain. I think there is research now. Yeah, is there? That's yeah. great. I, you'll, you'll have to show me that afterwards. Um, but it you can kind of even feel it. It's like there's so many li- you get instant gratification for whatever you want. Pretty much like you don't have to be patient. And in some ways it starts to rewire some people to like create for the likes or create for the the comments or the shares or whatever or the views whatever platform you're on and and maybe in some way you know in some ways it's great because you are serving an audience and that audience does dig whatever you're doing but i think you have to be careful that it's not the impetus for creating is not about other people it's not to impress like it's not about the metrics it shouldn't be it should still be about what you're genuinely interested in. And I think that's sort of the idea when people say someone's selling out or somebody's right. Right. And you know, that that can be a gray area sometimes, but I think it ultimately it should be about what is interesting to the creator. Otherwise it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. That thing you just said right at the end, that's the key, right. To being successful in any form is consistency and having it be sustainable for you. And yeah, I, I, I've got. I got to a point. I'm, I, I've just come around this corner, so mm. I have a little, bit, a little bit healthier relationship with social media now than I did before. But I just found myself posting because I was felt like I was trying to keep up. You know, mm. I wasn't. I didn't believe in everything I was doing. Yeah. I, I was working and making sure it was quality, of course. Right. But I don't know if, if I necessarily believed. You know, and the, what does that even mean to believe? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like oh, like. I'm posting a video of myself playing. I believe in that, right? Yeah. But I just realized to me, believing in it just means like, do I want to share this or do I feel like I have to share this? Mm. And trying to keep up and the number is going up, but then it didn't start going up as fast as it was. Right, and oh right. my gosh, now I feel bad. And it's how do I, it's so such a weird thing and being able to shut all that off Yeah. and to, to get to a place where you can just sit down and, create or sit down and study, sit down and practice, but focus on like you yeah. and what your demons are. And then to, you know, create something unique from that. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of think about, let's just choose a platform like Instagram, for example. And it's like, however many followers or whatever, it's less about that. For me, I imagine Instagram, like it would be if I were sitting in a room at a piano or something, and then however many, let's say like whatever, a few hundred or a few thousand people walk into the room, they just stumble into the room but because they want to be in the room, it's like no one kidnapped them, but they chose to like walk in the room. They saw the, the letter on the door or the title on the door. And it's like, oh, this guy plays piano and, you know, does X, Y, and Z. And they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. So they walk in the room and anything that I post is sort of like, I would, I would just genuinely share with those people in real life. Mm. Like this, this thing about flamenco music or whatever, I'd be like, guys, check this out. And then I would just play this passage. You know, I transcribed this earlier today. I think this is really cool. And then obviously we'd have more than a 60 second conversation about it. But on Instagram, you know, 60 seconds is the max or the caption or whatever. But I kind of think about it that way. It's like believing in it for me is like, would I, if 4,000 people walked into the room, would I believe in it enough where I'd be like, check this out. And, and that's kind of what I think of that's Instagram. That's a really as. interesting way to think about it. Yeah. So yeah, sustainability is the name of the game in a lot of what we do. And so maybe less is more for a lot of people because it's more sustainable. Yeah. And I think sustainability too is not, for me, I don't think of sustainability as like three videos a week is what I'm game aiming for. I'm Sustainability for me is identifying something about what is fueling those videos 
And for me, it's just, I love learning about music at this stage of my life. And maybe that will, that will evolve and change over my lifetime. But for me, it's like learning about music feels incredibly sustainable. And maybe there's nothing that's fully sustainable in life because life inherently is not sustainable. But, um, for me, it's like, I'm, I'm fascinating. So it, it feels easy to just post a video. And I, I don't know what I'm going to post next week, but inevitably I'm going to run into something and be like, this yeah. is cool. Or I'm going to transcribe something or I'll be working on something. You know, one of my favorite uh, content creators, we'll call him to, to digest is Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V as he's known. And one of the things he says is to document, not always feel like you have to create. Yeah. And for me, that's just what it feels like. I'm interested. I am creating something. It's a video or whatever, but it's, it feels like I'm just documenting my life in a lot of ways. Cause I'm, that's just part of being alive for me is being interested in music. Yeah. Yeah. For all you guys listening at the end of the episode, we'll, you know, put his Instagram and other ways you can find him, sure. but I would highly recommend checking it out. Cause it's just, it's, I think it's a, a very unique Instagram presence, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's just like, one video, I think it's the the one where it's like boodily, boodily, boodily. Oh yeah, got a match, got a match. Yeah. yeah, you're wearing like a tank top. Oh yeah, and it's <laughs> like it's like you just like turn on the camera and you're like, I'm doing this, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it feels like very genuine. It doesn't feel like you're like putting it on for anything. I think that's like such a unique in the in the world of everything being sort of. Yeah, like curated. Exactly. Yeah. I, I know. I mean, I think that kind of content is necessary too, and it's but, very effective. Yeah, yeah. But it's very refreshing too when you just mm. like feel like you you're like in the room with you. So <laughs> yeah. we'll we'll put all that contact info. You should check it out. Sure. Before we end here, yeah. um, I wanted to I want to talk about your podcast for a second because okay. also speaking of unique, I feel like you just have a unique approach to it, and yeah. I kind of want to bring you know some some attention to it. Um. I'm going to quickly say what I know about it yeah, and then you can please. fill in the gaps. Yeah, yeah. So what I know about it is it's a podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> first and foremost. Yes, sir. Uh, and you know, obviously you're interviewing people. Uh, you're choosing to do a lot of what it seems like right now, Nashville based yeah. uh, musicians. It's like, is it monthly? Yeah. Once a month. Yeah, Once a month right now. Um, and, I, and I've seen that it's not just jazz people that you yeah. play gigs with. It's it's like just people that are interesting people do interesting things, it seems like. Yeah. And the episodes are 30-ish. 20, 20. 20 is what we usually aim for. Yeah. Some are a little more, some are a little less. Yeah, yeah. okay. So 20, um, so it's like easy to digest, you yeah. know what I mean? You're not yeah. feeling like minor, you know, this is going to be like two hours or something like that. <laughs> so um, Both have places. Though. Yeah, so, but the one of the interesting and unique parts that I really want you to, to expand upon is... Beyond the the interview sort mm -hmm. of uh, style, you just have like jam sessions right. interspersed with that, and I w I'm very curious what's the uh, the inspiration behind sure. getting that in there. Yeah, well, the podcast is called the Improvisers Corner, and yeah, I guess I should have said that too. And, no, no, it's, it's <laughs> and so well, I, I only say that because the people that I choose. I, I choose Nashville-based improvisers. Pretty much that's like the criteria for the people that I, I choose and people who I feel maybe don't have a lot of spotlight on them who I, I feel like these are amazing improvisers who I've just gotten to know in <laughs> from random run-ins at shows or something. Maybe someone stopped by a, a production rehearsal once and you know, I got to know them. And people who I find interesting and then also people who I enjoy playing with. Because like you said, one component is the the jamming yeah. session. And we do it right here in this corner uh, on this, these marigold walls. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, I think the inspiration was twofold for me. I grew up sort of semi-consistently listening to this show called the Marion McPartland Show. Marion McPartland was this jazz 
amazing jazz pianist, but she would sit down with other jazz pianists and they'd play duo and she'd interview them and then they'd play a couple tunes like jazz standards, you know, cause it's just the canon of repertoire that exists. And, you know, she played with like Oscar Peterson or Bill Evans and she's amazing people. And it's cool to hear them in a different context, but then also hear how she adapts to each person's style because everyone's slightly different or more than slightly different. And then the other inspiration was Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is this show on, on Netflix that I really dig. And sort of the aesthetic of that, how they go from talking about random things and they just cut to like driving around in a car or, you know, some off the wall kind of funny comedic kind of thing. And and so the aesthetic of the improvisers corner was inspired by by both of those things. And I thought, you know, it'd be great as you're learning about this person and what they have to say with their with their mouth sounds is to also <laughs> <laughs> with their words uh, is to also hear how they communicate on their instrument. Yeah. And because cuz for me part of it is demystifying uh improvisation and showing that it's really not anything different than having a conversation. Yeah. And, and I really want to drive that point home because, and I talked about this on Karen's podcast too, uh, a little bit is how improvising uses the same part of the brain as having a conversation does. Like we have, we've been talking for over an hour and these conversations have not been pre-planned or right. pre-curated. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we plan some conversation topics, but how they flow is just how they that flow. That would be almost, I mean, maybe not pure improvisation, like what you're doing with the improvisers corner, but you know, you have charts and chord progressions, right? That keeps yeah. some amount of structure. Exactly. So it's not totally free form. Exactly. And even within our quote unquote free improvisations, everyone is bringing with them certain cultures. Like we did an episode, it's coming out this month with, um, Marcus Finney's mom, her name's Mabel Pleasure, and she is an amazing Hammond organist. And so she brings this this amazing church culture mm. with her. She's grown up playing in church, and then but then she also has these classical this classical background. She can read music, and so she's bringing all these different influences from Memphis, from Nashville, and um, and so she's bringing that, and that's sort of her way of speaking, you know. And and I have a very small amount of that compared to hers, but I still have a little bit of that. So we're able to converse in this way, just like you know if two people are musicians they can talk about music at a certain in a certain way cuz cuz music is, is ultimately a language and um, you know genres are dialects however you want to extend that metaphor yeah, yeah. but but that's really the main objective i think other than trying to shine spotlight on on nashville people is to or nashville improvisers is to uh, demystify impro- improvisation yeah. show that it's really not it shouldn't feel um, or you know it for me, I think it, it's not really, it shouldn't be felt as this insurmountable mountain because I do think it is more accessible than is typically uh, maybe shown or conveyed, especially in, in academia. Yeah, and I'm sure too, to a greater extent, um, beyond the the value that comes from, you know, just shining that spotlight, you probably feel like you've just learned a ton too, probably. Oh, man. Yeah. Like I was talking about Exactly with what yeah. you were talking about. Yeah. Like if I never released episodes, I got a jam with some amazing musicians yeah, right? and we got to uh, have like a 30, 40 minute conversation. Yeah. Well, um, I think that it's, it's time. All right. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me here in your home. You're very, uh, what color would these walls be? <laughs> Uh, they're not a marigold marigold walls <laughs> uh, it's very unique I feel like 
uh, like you, a very unique uh, <laughs> person. Uh, it's just been cool, man. It's just, like I said, I've been following. Once I figured out and found out who you were through Karen, I've been following your stuff, and it's just. It's a, it's a, it is like a joy actually uh, to just see somebody it, truly enjoy what they do. You know, Thanks, it's like you just seem to that you're you're like giving off that uh, fragrance, so to speak. <laughs> of it's just like a joy to play music and share and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing what you have to say with Thanks, me. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, my pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you, there are a number of ways to do that, and I will allow you. To let them know. Okay. Yeah, you could definitely go to my website, David M as in Michael Rogers, R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot com, David M Rogers dot com. And there's a little contact form there if you want to get in touch with me. I'm also on Facebook, David M Rogers Music, and Instagram DR4J. Those four characters, DR4J on Instagram. And uh, send me a message there too, and I'll get in touch with you. If you want to get in touch with me, it's that's not spit.com. And by, probably by the time this would be a thing, I'll also have a regular website, but that's no, that's why we're here right now. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Search at That's Not Spit. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or you've enjoyed others, I'd really appreciate it. If you went to iTunes, uh, went ahead and left us a review. Five stars is definitely the coolest one, but whatever you feel like works is fine with me. A rating would be, or sorry, a uh, a rating and a review. I kind of got those mixed up. I get those mixed up all the time. And then also, if you uh, don't do that or you don't use iTunes or whatever, if you just want to share it on a, any social media platform, uh, that helps out a lot as well. Uh, I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode and making it sound so good. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Next time.